This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, standing by for Louis DeBrus from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. It is uh, the Oilers and the Los Angeles Kings. And I don't know about you, even though it was two days ago, didn't it feel like that game four between the Oilers and the Los Angeles Kings might have been might as well have been two weeks ago? Uh, that's how much has happened since that one, but that was very much a spectacular game. And uh, a couple of notes from um, from this morning: Stuart Skinner in the starters nets. Interesting. After Jack Campbell came in to save that game, uh, Noah Vander Kane at the skate. But before anyone loses their mind, that might just be maintenance. Uh, we'll get Louis DeBrusque's uh, uh, update and thoughts on all of this from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Louis joins me now. Hey, Lou, how are you, pal? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you doing? Pretty exciting uh, start uh, to the playoffs here all around, wouldn't you say? It's been a, a, a Louis. I'm just gonna I, maybe I say this every year in the opening round because it is, but like this yeah. is spectacular. This has been great every single night. Like I know that the the yeah. Islanders and the Canes haven't exactly lit the world on fire, but every other series there's at yeah. least something in every game. Drama. And for some of these series, d- drama and like I like I look at you know Colorado and Seattle last night. Like that series has been an absolute track meet. Now we're gonna find out you know Kale McCarr how many games uh, does he get for the the hit on Jared McCann. Um, like every single the Maple Leafs, what they're doing to the Tampa Bay Lightning, which is stunning. Three games in a row, they've beaten John Cooper's squad, and then there's this Edmonton yep. LA series, which might be my favorite one out of all of them. Um, and the goalie change that helped save the game, and uh, maybe a questionable call on Kevin Fiala, but whatever, these things happen. And Drysaddle scores a pair in the second. It's off to the races, and you know uh, it's 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 overtime. And Hyman before that, you know, takes the the penalty and sits in the box and wonders, have I cost my team the season? There's so it's like like how like where do you? It's like a buffet, Lou. Like where do you want to start? Like you've got your plate, you're going to the buffet. Which area are you going to first? Let's hey. let's start with the goaltending. Are you surprised that Skinner's in the starters net? No, I'm not. And you can only stuff so much on that plate because trust me, I've tried a few times to really fill it up. <laughs> and there's only so much room, right? You can only pile so much on top of so much before you got to go sit down and try That's and get point. through it and go back for a second. But you know what? Listen, Stuart Skinner's yes. been the starter. So I look at any in any other situation where a starter has an off night or a night where a coach thinks he needs a spark from his team. He puts in Jack Campbell. He gets exactly what he wanted from Jack Campbell. Jack Campbell went in there and did a job. And you have to really take your hat off to him. Because coming in after 3 nothing after the first period, it was his first action in a while. You're sitting there going, okay, how's he going to handle this? The first shot on net, he bobbles in front of him. There's a couple of whacks at it right around the blue paint. And then from that point in time, you know, with the exception of a couple that he maybe mishandled coming into him, which every goaltender does, he closed the door. It was a terrific performance for him. And I think that's a real confidence boost, yeah. not only for Jack Campbell, but for the team. But, yeah, Stuart Skinner was the starter going into the playoffs. He earned that down down the stretch with his play, and he will be the starter tonight for Game 5. And I think that's the right call. I really do. I just think this is the guy they chose to go with. And until something happens to him or he shows form that you feel is falling apart, which I don't feel that in the three goals that were scored against him against the Los Angeles Kings, he was beaten clean by Arvidsson. Arvidsson's having a heck of a series. Rebound goal to Velarde on the first one, and then Ante Kopitar with a real nice sneak in tight after two tough battles lost. I don't blame that on Stuart Skinner. I think the Los Angeles Kings came out and did exactly what they've done the entire last year, first round series, and this year. They come out, they don't go away, they have an upper level that I don't think people appreciate as much as they should, and they showed it in that first period. They were mm-hmm. outstanding. You know, I look at this. Um, I look at this series right now, and there's a, a huge. Even though I don't really believe in momentum from from game to game, but but right now the Oilers have to be feeling good about themselves and maybe feel like they have a second yeah. lease on life. And you know, uh, yeah. if, if if the Edmonton Oilers end up winning this thing, and there's a great chance that they end. I know they're not at the two's best two out of three, but if they win this thing, I'm gonna look back on it and say there's one moment that this whole series hinged on, and it was Jack Campbell's save on Victor Arvidsson. Yes. If he doesn't make that, if he doesn't make that save, Louis, how different is all of this right now? Oh, that could have been a backbreaker, and you know, that was maybe a series winner. You know, it's very difficult. You know, the stats yeah. don't lie. I, unfortunately, I had been part of a team that was up 3-1 in the series and lost. 
with the Coyotes against the St. Louis Blues. Grant Pierce shot us out in Game Seven in '99, but yeah. um, it's it's really rare. It doesn't happen that often. You're giving an oppor- you're giving a team an opportunity three times to finish you off. All it takes is one mistake, one bad game, one bad period, and your season is over. So. Yeah, that was that was a critical juncture. There's no question about it. And I, I just, you know, for me, after that three nothing, could have been worse in the first period by the Los Angeles Kings. The Edmonton Oilers came on had 20 shots in the second period. They put the pedal to the metal. They attacked. They loaded up Drysdale and McDavid for the first time in a long time. The Jay Woodcroft went to those two and went to them alone. And it looks yeah. like that this morning again. Now who knows? It could be window dressing. It yep. could be just a little bit of. Uh, gamesmanship, putting the line combinations together in the morning skate, which Jay Woodcroft is known to do, but he's not afraid to shuffle up. And we will see Dreisaitl and McDavid together again tonight, no question about it. You're going to see them in portions of the game together because when they are, they're just so hard to handle, and it was the Kopitar line that was up against them. And they did a great job for the most part, but you're just not going to limit those opportunities that line is going to create. But um, you know what? You know- when they came out they came out in that second period, though, and to me, that was the season. It was like, what what are they going to do in this situation after getting bombarded in that first period? They come out, put 20 shots on. That's only the second time all year that the Los Angeles Kings have allowed 20 shots on net. And the first time was the very first game of the season against the Vegas Golden Knights in the regular season. That's how defensive-minded this LA Kings team is. They're fourth in shot suppression in the National Hockey League all year long give up the, the fourth least amount of shots per game. But Evanson has found a way to put 37-plus and 40 or more three times in the four games. They're working for it, but they're finding a way to do it, and they're yeah. going to have to continue to do it that way. But that was an outstanding pushback in the second period after the first morning. It, it was excellent. Um, I want to ask you about Todd McClellan, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned yeah. uh, Anse Kopitar's line out there against McDavid. Um, if you're Todd McClellan, listen, you know Todd McClellan, how long was he behind the bench for the Edmonton Oilers? If you're Todd McClellan, are you not tempted to do whatever you can tonight, maybe not to put Kopitar's line out there against McDavid, but rather fill up the nose line? Yeah. You know, I think he's comfortable with both matchups, and that's one thing he's talked about, and Deneau is a fantastic player. Andre Kopitar's a selkie winner. I mean, yeah, pick your poison, right? Yeah. Um, Deneau's been very good, and there's no question that was the matchup head-to-head against McDavid. Um, he wanted Dreisaitl, that, and that was Jay Woodcroft in the first couple of games at home, up against Topatar, and he wanted McDavid up against Deneau. And that was the matchup they were comfortable with, and they said, listen, this is what we're going to try and do. And give Deneau credit, there's no question, he, he played well against McDavid. If you look at the chances for and against, though, in the first couple of games, it was really heavy in McDavid's face. It just really was. They were, Puck wasn't going in. They weren't scoring five on five. It was a big talk going into game three in Los Angeles and obviously carried over to game four with a 3-2 loss in game three. But, you know, for me, I, I think if I'm, if I'm Todd McClellan, I'm picking on Jake Kopitar again. He's been in these situations. He's big. He can log a lot of minutes. And that also frees up, especially if they're loading up Dreisaitl and McDavid. Deneau's line in that game four, I thought, had some terrific chances. You know, Trevor Moore is, is just is, is a guy that, you know, has that speed, has that tenacity on the puck, creates chances out of nothing. Arvidsson has been all over the series. So you're freeing up yes. that line, so to speak, to go out there and be a little bit more offensive. And they did have their chances. I mean, Arvidsson scored a big goal. Um, it, to me, it just it really balances out for the Kings. It's a heavy load for the Kopitar line, but I think every single game that they go up against that line, especially if it's both Dreisaitl and McDavid, they're going to get better and better at it, and they're just going to continue to try and shut them down and suppress them, and hopefully their depth, which is done all year long for the Los Angeles Kings, and now it's Fiala back. We don't know about Blake Lozot for game number five, but he's another guy that could add that energy down their lineup. That's how they beat teams. They beat teams with depth. So if one team's neutralized and that's your big line, then guess what? Um, Fiala on the third line makes them super dangerous. And we saw what happened in game three in the first period with that. And then the second line also with Deneau. Deneau had two or three real good looks in that game because he was away from that matchup. So I think he stays with it. I do. I don't think he tries to fight that matchup and get the one they want. I think he just plays those top two lines against the top line. He's comfortable with both. You know, there was, um, what I thought, in in game four, there was such discipline 
displayed by the Edmonton Oilers. Like le- leading up to Game Four, there have been some you know, just some some sloppy penalties, just some like really undisciplined yep. play. 100%. Like you know, think of the moment here, guys. Think th- think think of where you're at, and it was all going great, really disciplined. Uh, mind your p's and q's, all of it, and then brain cramp for Zach Hyman, the slash on Mikey Anderson, and he sits in the box, and I can only imagine. What's going through his head at that moment, sitting in, as Harner Ryan puts it, uh, the, 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 the box of shame, and he might be thinking to himself, have I just cost us this series and our season, etc.? He turns into the overtime hero, nonetheless, because it's hockey, so there's poetry. How did you see Zach Hyman in Game 4? Well, I can tell you, he was due. There's no question he was due. And to say that he's been fighting a bit would be an understatement. He's still playing his hard game. He's up and down the wall. He's doing Zach Hyman things. But that puck just hasn't been bouncing his way. He's been fighting it a bit. And it was a huge goal for him, first and foremost. I thought it was a really important goal for him because if you look last year, it took him a little bit to get going in the playoffs. Then he scored 11. Then he really took off. And once he took off, he didn't slow down. But... So for me, though, that penalty, though, and that happened, it was the most disciplined game the Oilers have played in the series. It was the first time they had more power plays in a game than Los Angeles, and they capitalized on two of them. And then he takes that slashing call, and you're like, this L.A. team is just in the heads of the, of the Evans Oilers. They are winning the championship battle, and they have all series. But in game number four, I thought Edmonton did an excellent job of just sticking to the game plan, playing hockey, even when it was 3 nothing, There wasn't the bad penalties, the reaching. They dug in, and uh, I like what Derek Malone said there. And I was told to call him Malone from the Detroit guys, not Malone, but I hope yes. I'm saying it right. Correct. But he, um, you are. You know, I love what he said. He said it was meat and potatoes, meat and potatoes hockey. I mean, you've got the most skilled guys in the league on your top line, but when they go to work and they start grinding, look what happens. Look how they drew the penalty. Look how they scored their goals. It was off of cycles. It was off of the work down low, the goal line. And that's where they flourish. And they went to work instead of getting – undisciplined they went to work and became more disciplined but yeah I, I know what it feels like Jeff to take a penalty in a playoff game late I took a couple on Darian Hatcher in 97 <laughs> in a row it's funny because the supervisor the super the supervisor yeah, the supervisor for this series is Rob Schick and actually the second one was BS and you know what even Don Cherry said something about it on uh, Hockey Night in Canada I was like you kidding me but uh, it's funny. I sat beside him on the plane to LA, but it's all good. It's funny. We, he was, he was oh, great. Bit about having to throw me in the sin bin a few times, but you know what? It's, oh, a, it's awesome. a terrible feeling. I got to tell you, Jeff, it's a terrible feeling when you're sitting in that box and <laughs> you just know, and it was an undisciplined penalty on my part too, on Darian Hatcher. We were obviously trying to target him. He's a big part of the defense and core and we were trying yeah. to target him. And I hit him a little bit from the side from behind. It was a bad hit. And I went into that box and I was like, oh, geez, I just hope they don't score. And I mean, as soon as I jumped on the ice, I hit him again at the blue line and I got another penalty on him. Needless to say, I was out for game mm. seven. But I can tell you this, it's a, it's a long, lonely two minutes and that, that time ticks down the slowest oh. it can possibly tick down. And uh, for Zach Hyman, I think he was elated when his team filled it off for him. And he went out there and, uh, and went and finished it off with a big goal in overtime. So, it worked out, you know, and that's kind of what good teams do, and that's how teams that go on any kind of run, they find a way. And Edmonton found a way to really dig deep and come back and tie that game not once, but also late in the third period on the Evander Kane goal, which was an absolute laser, yeah. and uh, win it in overtime. For the first time in the two series, they beat L.A. in overtime. That was the fourth overtime game, three this year, one last year, where Camp Bay scored the mm-hmm. overtime winner. Edmonton finally was able to win one of those games. Huge. Um, l- let me end on this one, and I got about thirty seconds for it, Louis. Um, yep. We saw at the end of last of the uh, of the last game, uh, Vincent DeHarnay, uh, Clem Costin not hitting the ice. For Jay Woodcroft, is it yeah. a tonight a new sheet of ice, a new chance at opportunity for both of them? Well, well, I mean, if I know anything about Jay, I would say yes. I would tell you that he's going to let him give him an opportunity to kind of play himself out of that again. I think it was a good experience for uh, for Philip Broberg, sorry, going out there and playing some shifts. But Vinny DeHarnay was fighting. Yeah. He was having a night. And sometimes you're going to have those nights, and sometimes you're going to have to sit somebody on the bench. It worked. I don't think it's something they want to do. But uh, he took it in stride, as Vinny has always done. He's, a, he's still a young player in the league. Not a young player, but a young player in, yep. this, uh, in this hockey league. 
and he still has to figure some things out, but he's been very valuable, and that's why they go 11-7. and seven. That's why they have that backup defenseman there. As far as Costin, he seems to be the guy that finds his way to the end of the bench more often than not, and he's had some impactful moments in this series. But when you start digging down and loading up the top line like Jay did, you're going to shorten your bench, and unfortunately he was one of the casualties. These happen. Uh, best two out of three starts tonight between the Edmonton Oilers and the Los Angeles Kings. Louis, brilliance as always. Thanks so much for doing this, pal. Hey, good chatting, Jeff. I haven't chatted for for a while. Good catching up. Yeah, it's been well. Yeah, good catching up. You too, man. <laughs> Louis DeBrusque from the NHL on Sportsnet and uh, Hockey Night in Canada. Always love having Louis here on the program. Uh, always love watching and listening to him and Harner Ryan sing uh, as part of the Edmonton Oilers broadcast of this really good series. And you want to talk about, you know, lead changes and emotion changes and am I just watching hockey to see how high I can get my blood pressure? I'm convinced that's why I like playoff hockey so much. It's like a test that I have for myself. I'm going to test to see how high I can get my blood pressure up. It happens every night. Maybe you're the same way. I suspect you are. All right. Um, blood pressure is up with the Islanders. Backs up against the wall. There could be closeout night tonight. Could be handshake alley. The first handshakes of the season. Hurricanes and Islanders. We'll talk to Thomas Hickey, Islanders studio analyst about tonight's matchup. Can the Islanders find some goals? And specifically on the power play? We'll find out. Thomas Hickey coming up. Randy Hahn as well. Hour two is next. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome to Hour 2. Thanks so much for joining me once again today. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, Randy Hahn, who normally is a Sharks play-by-play voice, uh, is also a voice of the NHL on TNT, and most recently did the uh, the Dallas Stars-Minnesota Wilds. We'll talk to him about that series and get an update on what's happening with San Jose um, as well. In the meantime, we welcome aboard Thomas Hickey, uh, former NHL defenseman, now outstanding studio analyst for the New York Islanders who find themselves with their backs against the wall and Sergio cliche here, no tomorrow, we don't want to shake hands tonight, we want to live to to fight another day. Uh, First of all, Thomas, thanks so much as always for stopping by. How are you today? You got it, Jeff. I'm good, thanks. And you know, uh, to pile on to the cliches, yeah, it's it's one game at a time for this group that's uh, that's looking at a must-win situation. <laughs> so we'll we'll see tonight. But you know, I think everything that we heard up morning skate uh, as we're here in Raleigh to cover the game, it's it's yeah. one game at a time. Get to get it to three-two and see what you can do. But uh, not where the Islanders wanted to be when the series began, for sure. We don't have to win three games. We have to win one game three times. Oh, okay. Thanks. Thanks. Did, by the way, just as, as a player, I'm sure you had those those eyeball rolling moments. So when either it was a, maybe a fellow teammate or coaches or whomever, did you have like a pet cliche that every time you heard it, you just couldn't help but roll your eyes and go, oh, not bringing that old biscuit out, are we? Yeah. You know what? I, I was always very, you know, not the most, cliche guy the the things that for me what I would always be like I wasn't a big um quotes up on the wall type guy I wasn't like a you know these are the the three d's or the three e's that you gotta live by for me I was always like okay that's just that's just extra stuff when I'd see not that they're bad things but it never really resonated with me when it would be like okay here's the three d's dedication determination those things never really oh, clicked yeah. for me at all, but I, I think everyone, they work for some people, so there's a reason for them. You, you, know, that, you know, I want to get back to the Islanders here in a second, but that, that leads me to something that I'm always curious about as well. Whenever a team, you know, lays an egg to start the game, like first 10 minutes they get completely caved in and afterwards uh, the discussion revolves and, oh, they, you know, they, they, they didn't start on time, they didn't come to play, and a lot of that, you know, the coach will take responsibility for I've always kind of been of the mind that that's not a coaching thing. That's a that's a player thing. Like that's like the player responsibility to come, you know, to arrive on time and and, and start the game on time as as the old cliche goes. How did you always look at that? Like if your team would lay an egg in the first 10 minutes and the coach would bear the brunt of it. Do you not think that's more of a player thing or do you believe that that's the coach's responsibility to get you ready to play that game? 
No, I agree with you. I, I think it's a player thing, and I think the coaches, you know, usually when the team doesn't come to play, as people say, or late in eight against start, usually it's because you had like 12 guys that weren't ready to play. But if if only two of those guys weren't ready to play, the result would be different. I think I think as a coach, like maybe there's there's points in the season where uh, maybe there's not as much emphasis put on it, and they're probably trying to read the room, and they don't want their voice to get tired out but as a player I always looked at it like it's my job to start on time it's my job to be ready I don't need a coach to tell me it's a big game or tell me that uh, I need to be focused or you know I I always took that Mm -hmm. upon myself I I think a lot of times it's sort of the coaches um, maybe assuming that they didn't do all the right work at the end of the day it's it's up to each player to to get their head on straight before a game so then we'll, we'll focus on coaches and dive in here with the Islanders who now find themselves, you know, facing elimination. Um, what has Lane Lambert done here or what can Lane Lambert do to try to turn this thing around? Like there's a, there's a lot of things we can point out here and I want to get to Ronta versus Sorokin in a second, but if you're Lane Lambert, what can you do at this point? Yeah, well, certainly number one, and I think league-wide there's been a ton of goalie changes. I think I would absolutely stay away from that. I'm a big Simeon Varlamov fan, but Ilya Sorokin is the reason this team's in the playoffs in the first place. And I look at him throughout the series. I thought he was great in game one. I thought he's human in game two. I thought he was sensational in game three. And I thought he was human again in game four. You just, that's not even a starter for me. What can Lane Lambert do? I mean, at this point in the season, the the big things that he could do, he, he's got to get some offense out of, uh, you know, since Matt Barzell's been back. I, I cut him a lot of slack. He missed two months of hockey, which is uh, which is really mm-hmm. difficult. And he's come back in, and him, Horvat, and Lee haven't had the impact on the series that I think you'd be looking for. So, you know, the, right. the one thing you could do is, is try to get him away from Jordan Stahl. I think Jordan Stahl is just a bigger part of that is, is perhaps – uh, anyone's particular struggles. So I think that that is the one thing if you can try to avoid it, but you're on the road. I, I, I think perhaps as the game goes on, if, if things are a little bit stagnant with that line, you might see him mix and match who he's got going out and perhaps move a guy from place to place. But he hasn't wanted to touch the Brock Nelson, Pierring, Volkyle, Palmieri line because they've been really productive. So I'm interested to see if he slots guys in and out if the offense isn't there you know, say probably after the first period or halfway through the game, because then I think you need to, because it hasn't worked for five games. But uh, outside of that, I mean, the the one thing that got away from the Islanders, which they've been good at all season, is they sort of lost their discipline. And, and that was surprising to me. They took some bad penalties, uh, really bad times of the game, and that hurt them. And I, I don't really look at that as a coaching thing. So I, I think for him, the only way the Islanders were going to win this series is is to slug it out, to wear them down, and to be better 5-1-5 because they struggled on the power play. So really his, his only card is, is making sure that, that his group continues to compete and you just hope somehow that you, you get a huge performance out of a guy or two and then as the series drags on, you've got a lot of sore, tired Carolina defense because they've been put up against the glass over and over and over again and you hope that what you've done up to this point is, is sort of what allows you to win throughout it. But outside of switching a few guys around, I think he's just got to double down on his message of, of competing, working hard and trusting and hoping that that, that will be enough. How do you, um, how do you look at power plays? So I think we're all wondering the same thing too. And like, this is, you know, one of the reasons why they went out and got Bo Horvat um, in the first place from Vancouver to help on the power play. Do you think, do you think that power plays are more an issue of composition or an issue of coaching? I.e., is is the power play nothing more than just having great players, or is it a matter of having great power play coaches? Do you have a, a handle on what makes a great power play and and who's most influential with it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two, and the third thing's confidence, and I think. When you start out poorly, uh, it, it seeps into the fabric of your power play. And, I mean, guys aren't scrolling on their phones to find out what the power play's percentage is, but you do know often when you lose a game and your power play's 0 for 4 or 0 for yeah. 5, 
those guys know, and they take it upon themselves. And I, I think if you can start the season off on the right foot, perhaps there's a little more confidence in that group, and maybe they're improvising a little bit more. And, and for this team in particular, the power play hasn't been a strength of the team for quite some time, for, for dating back years. Yeah. And um, people that have ran the power play have gone on to run good power plays in other places. And, and personnel-wise, like I, I like the composition of it. you got an excellent net front guy in Andrews Lee. You've got Matt Barzell, who can create so much. Brock Nelson's a great shooter. You've got the right pieces. The thing I see with the Islanders' power plays, it's so stagnant. And I think, from my perspective, I killed penalties a lot, didn't play on the power play, but I always found it tough when there was moving parts. And, and guys are in different positions on the ice than what you saw in the pre-scout. And all of a sudden, they're just ad-libbing, and, and they're using their, their hockey sense and their intuition rather than getting so concerned with where am I supposed to be and what is our what is our set play or what do we want to do? The best power play is improvise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that's gotten away from the Islanders and probably, you know, when things aren't going well, you're gonna coach and, and try to make sure guys are in the right spots and any power play that's, you know, in the bottom third of the league, I think the problem is there's less improvising and there's more we need to do this and everyone's trying to follow orders rather than than just be free and play. And that's been the biggest issue with the Islanders. They can't get into the zone. I mean, that's the first part. Their entries have been very poor. But outside of that, I I think you need to improvise. You look at the best power plays. The guys are moving around. They're they're carrying the puck around the zone and forcing other people to adjust. And that's been probably the biggest crutch for the Islanders this, uh, this season with their power play. You know, you mentioned Ilya Sorokin early in the conversation, Thomas. Uh, speaking with Thomas Hickey, Islanders studio analyst. Uh, Islanders backs up against the wall down 3-1, uh, the hands of the Carolina Hurricanes. You mentioned Sorokin. Uh, just a spectacular season uh, from him. Uh, when we look at the game within the game, uh, how much do you look at the matchup of Sorokin versus Ranta and say, you know what, the Carolina goaltender is kind of getting the better of Sorokin here. Is that accurate to you? Uh, to me, it's not. I, I think to a casual viewer of the series, that that's a totally fair argument. Um, the way I see it, Antti Rant is a very good goaltender. His numbers this year, his record speaks for itself. So I'm not at all um, putting him down one bit. I look at the goals that have been scored this series. Game one, Islanders only had one. It was a bad goal. It was a weird play, but it was a bad goal. Uh, game two, three goals that uh, as a goaltending coach, you know, there's good players in this league and they'll put it in the right spot. Not the three best goals I've seen, but he's been just as good as he's needed to be. I thought in game three, when the Islanders won, I thought it was probably Ranta's best game. I, I thought he was really good. In game four, he was steady. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a guy that so far, you know, get 25 shots, you make 24 saves, that's all you need to do. He's He's done his part. I don't my opinion is if the goaltenders switch teams for a series, I, I think the series would be over already. Uh, I, I think Ilya, especially in game three, kept he, he's got a knack for keeping his team in just long enough for them to find its footing. And he's done that in every game but one of them. And the goals, that they've scored a lot of power play goals. And obviously your goalie's your biggest penalty killer, but there have been breakdowns that, that made it really difficult for him. Um Certainly the overtime goal in game two, maybe one where you look at it. The funny thing about Ilya Sorokin is when he has a human performance, everyone goes, geez, that was strange. And he's had a couple human performances, which is normal <laughs> yeah. for any goalie. But everyone's like, geez, what's going on with Ilya? And it's like, oh, no, he just looked like your typical NHL goaltender today. Um, but you remember, mm-hmm. like I grew up in Calgary. I, l- I loved the stat. It was on Mika Kiprasov after he gave up five goals or four plus or something. His numbers were crazy. And I dug it up today and I was thinking, I, Ilya always seems really good after he lets in five and his save percentage is extremely high. His goals against is, is sub two and his re- win loss record actually isn't good, but those numbers are very, very good. So he's a guy that he's so unflappable that he approaches every game the same way, but a little more determination after a game like last game. So I'm excited to see him tonight because realistically this team's going to hinge on, on, you know, if you need to win three in a row, your goaltender is probably going to have to provide one of those 
nearly on his own. So he, I always come back to Ilya. I'm, I'm the I'm his biggest fan. You know, playoff Vasilevsky used to be like that, and I, I I come shy of saying used to be like that. I still think that same goaltender is is in there, although he struggled right now uh, against the Maple Leafs. So a very un-Vasilevsky type uh, mm-hmm. uh, start to the playoffs uh, for him. But so he, here here's what I'm curious about, and you've you've watched this player, you've competed against this player. He's one of the most distinct players in the league, instantly recognizable, um, a very marketable <laughs> uh, player in a, in a lot of regards. When I watch this series, I just look at how much damage Brent Burns is allowed to do here. And, and, I, and I say to myself, you know, here's someone that, and I know I'm guilty of this too, uh, I think a lot of voters for the Norris have slept on. He had an excellent season for the Carolina Hurricanes. He's not going to win the Norris Trophy, but he should be on a lot of ballots. Um, when you watch Brent Burns with this Carolina Hurricanes team against the Islanders, Thomas, what goes through your mind? What are you seeing as an NHL defenseman that someone like me or someone listening or watching right now wouldn't normally pick up on? Yeah, he, he's definitely been the most impactful player in the series. I mean, the one thing that I think everyone would pick up on is no one in the NHL from the back end has an ability to get their shots on net like Brett Burns. Like, it's not just that he's big and strong and he can sort of come down the wall and be on one foot on his back leg and, and zip something towards the net, but it's his ability to find lanes. And for him, he's consistently finding those lanes uh, especially on their power play. Sorry, one sec. I got my one. Sorry, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, hotel life here. <laughs> Checking for uh, cleaning that's my room. That's okay. Hotel uh, life, man, sir. That's right. Uh, he's been so good at that. I think what separates him from everyone else is if you're playing a team at, like the New York Islanders that their identity is they're forechecking and punish you over and over again, he's a guy that can mm-hmm. absorb contact and still make the play that he wants to, to make. Whereas myself or any smaller defenseman or even guys that are six foot three, that impact of that collision is going to force you to make a play that, that is not your option one. And Brent Burns is able to go back, take contact, and still make still hit his option one. Even even if someone's bearing down on him or hitting him really hard, he, he knows how big he is and he takes full advantage of that. Let me just pause on hotel life here for one second because just hearing you answer the door, I instantly flashed back to a conversation. I'm not going to say who the player was. He's a good friend of mine, and he said, you know, when I when I retired, I put on like a, a real quick uh, a real quick 20 pounds because I was still traveling a lot and still a lot of hotels, but because I wasn't skating every day and, and working out, you know, I would you know w- wouldn't be able to sleep at 2:30. I'd call room service. I'd get like a a Sunday or a banana split, and it would be no problem because I'd skate it off in the morning. But that changes. Uh, when you're not playing anymore. How is hotel life different now for you, Thomas, than yeah. when you played? It's definitely different. You know, I think the biggest luxury once I stopped playing was like, okay, I can eat this, not that. I can uh, I can drink this, not that. That part's <laughs> been nice. For me, I, my biggest thing was don't let myself get to that point. And so I, I work out every game day. I sort of feel like it just routine wise. Yep. So I've, I've always made sure I find a way to, to work out on a game day. But for me, the biggest thing is like, I've lost weight, not in the sense that I might <laughs> never had the tightest stomach in the world. It's, I've lost weight. And, but at the same time, it's like muscle mass. Cause I'm not lifting weights anymore. I'm, I'm like running and, and right. doing cardio and, and being on the bike instead. But it's tough because I think it, it comes at you quick and you're forced to eat so many meals at hotels maybe rather than the team meal that gets provided yeah. for you where it's going to be really nice. If I'm in Carolina, it's like, okay, well, you're going to go to a, a southern spot and, and do as the uh, people in Raleigh do. So it, that part of it's fun for me, though. So <laughs> it, it is it is difficult, but I know guys balloon up, and my biggest thing was like, okay, don't oh, get yeah. to the point where you're where you're trying to chase it because that's no good. So it's a constant battle, but – uh, doing okay so far, but check back with me next year. It might be different. <laughs> Something tells me you're not going to pull the parachute like a lot of other players <laughs> in the first couple of years after they're after they're retired. It's like poof! Whoa, where did that uh, where did that come <laughs> from? Um, yeah. oh, do you do you nap? Is that is that still part I of do. your routine too? I know that's a tough one sometimes. Do you still nap? 
I do. I, I do. I, I, at the start of the year, I was over preparing, you know, just trying to make sure I didn't miss out on anything. And I'd be like cramming yeah. all day, which probably wasn't even the most productive thing. And now I've got to a point where I do have a routine before I'd be like, if I don't, if I don't close my eyes for two hours, I'm going to be like, I'm selling myself short. Now I'm like, you know what, if it's a 45 minute nap, whatever it is, even if it's just closing my eyes for 15 minutes and not sleeping, I still make sure I do it because it's funny. Like when my wife first met me, you know, she would no hockey background, didn't understand. She's like, you're like a little kid. You go to meal time, you go to snack time, you, you go to nap time, you do all these things. And I'm like, yeah, it's the, it's the best. I, I don't want to give up on that. If I can build it into my routine, I'm going to do it. So I, I still make time for nap time every day in game days. Uh, I just, I just love it. I, I just love it. Um, let me let me end on this one. What do you, what do you look for tonight? I mean, I, I think it's going to be desperation hockey. That's that's the obvious one from the Islanders as they look to to stave off elimination here from the uh, the Carolina Hurricanes. But um, you know, here we are hours before puck drop. What, what does this game look like in your mind tonight? This game, and if there's games that come after this, I think you need a performance from one guy in each game and one that you haven't got like Ryan Pulock's been incredible this series, but you need, you need someone to step up and score a couple goals, whether it's your Brock Nelson, your Horvat, your Barzell or a performance in net. Like I talked about with Ilya Sorokin, I think each one of these games, you're going right. to need a performance like that because the teams they're playing hard. They're competing. Like I give these guys a ton of credit. They're doing, they're working just as hard as you need to. I when I look at this game tonight, I go, who's going to be the guy that that pushes them over the top and has a huge game? Because I think they'll need that in each of the three if if they do get to play those three games. It's going to be a tough one. Uh, Islanders in against a very good, yeah, albeit banged up, Carolina Hurricanes squad. Uh, Thomas, you're great. Thanks so much as always uh, for stopping by, sharing expertise, and uh, scurrying away hotel staff uh, that are trying to help <laughs> you so you can talk to us today. Really, really appreciate it, pal. You be good. My pleasure, guys. Take care. There he is, uh, the one and only Thomas Hickey, uh, former uh, NHL defenseman, now studio analyst for uh, the New York Islanders. Uh, it's been tough. Like, the power play's not clicking. Like, there's a lot of places they can't score, namely the power play um, and five-on-five. Five. I think it was I think it was Harry Neal's great line about one of his, was it one of his Vancouver teams, where he said... Um, uh, we can't win at home. We can't win on the road. And my failure as a coach is I can't find somewhere else to play. Harry Neal always had the best lines. Uh, tonight, uh, backs against the wall for the New York Islanders as the Carolina Hurricanes could close out uh, with a victory tonight. Do we see handshakes? We'll see. Um, there are, by the way... Should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, only three games on the go around the NHL this evening. Going to see the games start to now trail off. So, uh, hope you enjoyed that four-gamer last night. But games are going to start to trail off here a little bit. Uh, Islanders and Hurricanes, you can watch this one starting 7 o'clock Eastern on Sportsnet East, Ontario and Pacific. Uh, the Wild and the Stars. And we'll talk to Randy Hahn about this one in a couple of moments. 8 o'clock Eastern on Sportsnet 360. The Kings and the Oilers at 9.30 Eastern as the venue shifts back to Edmonton. Stewart Skinner gets the start. I know people like me making the case for Jack Campbell. Deaf ears. Uh, watch this one on CBC and Sportsnet. The Kings and the Oilers. That is now a best two out of three. Uh, Matt Marchese is aboard. How are you today, Matty? I'm good. I got a couple Harry Neal things for you that I think you'll enjoy. Oh, yeah? What do you got? Yeah. What do you got so first, first off, uh, my favorite quote of his is, I know my players don't like my practices, but that's okay because I don't like their games. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, too. Yeah, that's a great one um, hacksaw. But my favorite one was when I was doing the... I was I was producing Hockey Central the first go-around when I was producing it, and I called Harry Neal yeah. to see if he wanted to come on the show, and I said, you know, Mr. Neal, we'd love to have you. He goes, yep, just call me here, and if I don't answer, I'm dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was someone... I got to be really, really vague about this, but there was someone... It's a great story... Um, God, this is years ago. Someone who was new to hockey media in Toronto was having a conversation with Harry who said, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to really work out for me here. And Harry said, well, why is that? 
He says, I don't know. I just, I just get the sense that, that, uh, that, that, that people don't like me here. That's not really working out. And Harry in a great line says, oh, that's not true. You haven't met everybody yet. <laughs> that's so good. Oh my God. So that's so good. <laughs> oh, Harry is oh, some fantastic, fantastic one-liners. Some of, some of his, some of his stories with Glenn Sonmore. So him and Glenn ran the uh, the Minnesota Fighting Saints for a number of years, and some of the some of the old Fighting Saints stories with uh, with Son Moore and um, and and Hacks are are just the best. Somewhere in one of these periods where we've got you know an, an hour worth of airtime to fill, and we just want to fill it with fun stories, we got to do Minnesota Fighting Saints stories with, uh, with oh yeah. Neil and, uh, and 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 the late Glenn Sonmore, absolutely. That's that that's a no brainer. But what are we doing today? We're not doing Minnesota Fighting Saint stories here, taking us down to the bottom of the hour when Randy Hahn joins us. What are we doing now? Let's uh, let's do some mailbag questions. So we'll read other people's mail uh, in this case because well this we didn't have fun. a mailbag. Yes. Um, okay, so the first one, uh, this one was from uh, okay. Dan Rosen's mailbag from NHL.com. Uh, this was from a couple of weeks ago, but I thought yeah. it was pretty pretty relevant for what's going on in the playoffs. So scoring is up. We've got a bevy of a hundred point scores, multiple 50 goal scores. Is this skill level going up the rule enforcement's doing their job or a combo of both? And that was from a guy named at Mikey box. So Mikey, I think that's a combination of a few things. I don't think it's just one thing. Oh, and by the way, do you notice how the conversation around, we need to get the goalie equipment smaller has just completely vanished. You can make the argument now. You might need to make the goalie equipment bigger. Oh, no, don't do that. So, like, at a, at a certain point, the goaltender is going to say, well, hold, hold on a second here. You know, when we were stopping all the pucks, you said make the, the equipment smaller. Now they're scoring all the goals. Can we make it bigger and help our fraternity out here a little bit? Hey, hey, Kay Whitmore, start making the start making the pads bigger. Um, honestly, I, I think that this is – what this is is um, – I know the guy that you used to work for at Primetime Sports, Bob McCown, would always say it was <laughs> a big proponent touch. of you can't teach touch. You can't teach touch. That's And what we've learned is, well, that's not true. Um, but we all believe. Like, I grew up believing that, right? I always grew up believing that Mike Bossy is a natural goal, goal scorer. He was born to score goals. And, you know, the uh, the Finnish Mike Bossy, Yari Curry, he was born to score goals. It's just something that you were born to do. And we all grew up saying, well, I guess you can't teach offense. That's just, you know, go have fun. And some guys can do it and some guys can't. And what we're seeing through coaching and everybody has, you know, very specific instructors and goalies have their, their goalie coaches and, you know, players have their own instructors and shooting coaches. And these people are paid a lot of money to help players score goals. Um, does the technology of the sticks help? Yes, not just with shooting. Uh, but one thing I was mentioning, I think it was, was it yesterday's show, Maddie, where, it's, where I was talking about one of the things that we never discuss is not how hard the players shoot, and they do though, but just how hard and quickly the players pass. Like the stick mm-hmm. technology isn't just great for shooting, but also passing as well and receiving passes because everyone has mastered these sticks. And a lot of what goes into taking an effective shot is your pre-shot movement of the puck. So I think it's coaching. I think it's technology. I think it's the players now that are paying attention to their game in the off season. Like this was always the thing. Goaltenders at the end of the year would... You know, take a little bit of time off and then go back to work on their game. And they spent the summers working on how to stop pucks. Like that was it. And they all had very sophisticated goaltending coaches. Was the equipment and assistance? Yes, of course it was. But they worked on their game. And you know what players did? They went to the gym. Mm-hmm. And they did trap bar and they did bench press or whatever whatever they, they were going to do. Their shoulder press. Um, they just worked on getting their strength back. And then maybe a couple of weeks before training camp, they'll skate again and pick up their sticks. Now, guys are working on their skills. Shooters are working on their skills. And right now, everybody shoots. Not, not just everybody shoots hard, but everybody shoots accurately. That's the thing that kills me about today's about today's players. Everybody shoots hard. That's a given now. Everybody can skate. 
right? We always say, where have all the bad skaters gone? Well, they're not in this league. Well, they're not in any league right now. Everybody can skate. But the way that they're they're able to shoot now, and everyone's got a shooting coach. Like, you have to. And this goes down to minor slash youth hockey. The way the players are, are able to, to fire pucks accurately, where they can place pucks, how they can see tiny spots to, to, uh, to, to get around or through goaltenders, to me is remarkable. And I think it's a byproduct of players saying, you know what, you can teach touch. And you're seeing it every single season at every single level of hockey, Maddie. Yeah, it's true. And the guy that that when you say that, when you say you can't teach touch and that doesn't exist anymore, the guy that comes to my mind is Zach Hyman. Like Zach Hyman is second last year of college with the University of Michigan had seven yeah. goals. He had 36 this year. And does it help playing with Connor McDavid and Leon Dresch? Sure. But he also scored 27. He scored 21 twice. Like th- this is a player that has worked on that part of his game to get better. And it has worked for him. Like there are plenty of you stories, know, but that's the first guy that I think of. Yeah, you know, you know what what really helped him though. Like if you watched him playing it uh, in in the OJ for Hamilton, there's always a good player in there. Just tough to watch get around the ice. Like to me, to me, the Zach yep. Hyman story is the guy that worked on his feet, the guy that worked on his skating, the guy that worked on the heavy boots. Like he's never going to be confused for Pavel Bure. Get it, but. No one looks at Hyman anymore and says, oof, it's ugly watching him get around the ice. He's, he's done. He's put in the work. He's, he's really done a great job because if you would have watched him in Tier 2, oh, boy, Maddie, he would have said, real good player, real nice hands, real smart player. The feet are going to hold him back. No one says that about Zach Hyman anymore. But, but that's also something that, you know, that's another thing that people say, well, you're, you're, if you're fast, you're fast. Like the smaller guys were always fast and the big guys could never be fast. They just, they were just big. And then there's a guy, you know, Tage Not Thompson true. comes around and he's the guy who's <laughs> a monster and can wheel around the ice as fast as anybody else. Yeah. I, I think what, I, I think bigger players just naturally because they're bigger look slower getting around the ice. Uh, I think people saw a, a good eyeball of this with Matt Sundin in Toronto. Matt Sundin could really move, right? And, you know, now, did, did it take him longer than other players maybe to get the uh, the engine going? Perhaps. But I, I think, I, honestly, I, I think that uh, optically, bigger players look like they're going slower, but they're not. You know what I mean? Like, I, th- I think it looks like smaller players might be going quicker than they are. Again, this is just eyeballs. But it looks like smaller players are going quicker than they are. And I've always felt that bigger players... Um, are actually traveling faster than they appear. They look to be going slower just because of the size. You know, like I look back and you know, I, I always wondered, like, what did people do? Like before there was Eric Lindros, you know, who was the first like massive center who could move his feet. And Lindros was, Lindros was phenomenal. That's part of what made him such a freak. Had that size, great hands, and he could move his feet. But the guy before Lindros who was like that down the middle was Jean Beliveau. And I always, I would like, you'd love to like, okay, be able to, to go back in time and see what it was like to see someone as big as Beliveau was move the way that Beliveau did, move his feet the way that Jean Beliveau did. I honestly think that one of the players that we still don't, and listen, here's someone who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame and has got you know, double digits, his name scratched on the cup, but someone that I still don't think we talk enough about as far as being greats in the game you know, one of the first big men that could move his feet and could, and had a nasty side as well. I know we think of Gentleman Jean Beliveau, you know, the, the, the stately Jean Beliveau. But there was some dirt in his game too. But I think one of the, he's one of the players that we don't pay attention enough to and how much of an impact he had on the game. And it was the big guy who could move his feet like that and wheel the puck like that. I don't think we... Talk enough. We talk a lot about Gordy. I get it. Um, Rocket. I get it. I don't think we talk enough about Beliveau, just because he was that big guy that could move his feet, Maddie. Yeah, it's it's very true, and and I think part of it is too because the bigger guys have the longer strides, so that's why maybe it looks a little bit they different. Do. Whereas the smaller guys have the maybe the shorter, choppier stride, just because they're smaller, their legs aren't as big, and that's why it makes them look like they're going yep. uh, a little bit faster. Um, it's all about optics, Water Jeffrey. Bug. 
That's all it is. Fool them again. Mirrors and black curtains. Welcome to my career. Uh, we'll hit a break, try to fool them again uh, with someone who knows what he's talking about. That's kind of been my bit. Put me around people that know what they're talking about. It's brilliance by association. Randy Hahn uh, normally is a play-by-play voice of the San Jose Sharks. He's most recently worked the Dallas-Minnesota uh, series, a particularly skilled and, dare I say, violent affair uh, between two teams who really don't have much time for one another. We'll get Randy's thoughts on this series coming up in a couple of moments. Uh, Wild and Stars tonight, 8.30 or 8 o'clock Eastern, watch it on Sportsnet 360. The great Randy Hahn joins me in moments. Merrick's show continues across the Sportsnet radio network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. One more. <laughs> this is great. Before the break, we were talking about uh, favorite Harry Neal lines. Dana, the goalie guy, tweets this to me. Dana's a great guy, too. Uh, my favorite Harry Neal line was when he said in Vancouver that they had a bad luck song. Someone would ask, what song is that, Harry? To which he would reply, the national anthem. The one and only Harry Neal. He is a gem. Uh, Randy Hahn joins me now. San Jose Sharks play-by-play voice. Also from the NHL on TNT. Most recently working the Dallas Stars Minnesota Wild. Randy, how are you today? Thanks so much for joining me. I'm very well, Jeff. Great to be with you. Uh, great to be with you, too. You know, over the past couple of days, one of the things that, um, that we've been talking about is, you know, the, uh, the, the number of, uh, of ex-St. Louis Blues players uh, who are out there and are contributing significantly to their team's quest for the, for the Stanley Cup, whether it's Alex Petrangelo in Vegas, whether it's Ryan O'Reilly in Toronto, uh, whether it's Vladimir Tarasenko with the Rangers. And I look at the, the San Jose Sharks and we're just talking to Thomas Hickey and we have a big conversation about Brent Burns. Uh, we think of the, the Dallas Stars, a team that you most recently called, and even though he's injured right now, I think of a player like Joe Pavelski, who was just so profound with the San Jose Sharks and, you know, up until the injury with the, the Matt Dumba hit, just having another sublime season uh, for the uh, for, for the Dallas Stars. When, when I say these two names to you specifically, Randy, um, Brent Burns, now the Hurricanes, Joe Pavelski, now the Dallas Stars, where does your brain go? Uh, boy, you know, winners, first of all, because they were part of so many great runs that the Sharks had, unfortunately, never able to quite get over the hump. And and especially when I look at, at Joe Pavelski, because Brent Burns was a first-round draft pick, and, you know, coming out of junior, yep. he, you know, he was tagged to be a, you know, a, he was going to be an impact player, probably not at forward, although he did end up spending time there, and, and, and most prominently his defenseman where he, he won a Norris Trophy. But, you know, Joe Pavelski drafted seventh round, um, you know, every at every level Joe was at, two things uh, were said to him: "You're too small, and you're too slow." And that started at youth at the youth hockey level, and it went into uh, high school hockey. It went to the USHL. It went to NCAA Division One at Wisconsin, and at every one of those levels. And when he was tagged at being too too small or too slow, he made the team. He became the captain of that team and won a championship as captain with that team. The only level where he's missing the championship because he's been a captain with the Sharks uh, is at the NHL level. He just has always over-delivered and defied the odds. And, and now he's doing this at an advanced age. And, and it would not surprise me at all uh, to see him back for game six in Minnesota on Friday, or, or if it goes to a seventh game, he skated again today. And, and that tells me that, you know, if it comes down to a make it or break it game for the Dallas stars, Joe Pavelski going to be there. And, and Burns is, you know, the, the, the mon- the man child, uh, who's now not a man child anymore. He's, he's getting on in years. Yeah. But he has such an incredible regimen of how he takes care of himself and his preparation. It's legendary. And, and now, uh, you know, mm. he has been an incredibly 
impactful player for a Carolina team that due to all their injuries, not necessarily on D, but you know what I mean, they need someone yeah. to be that impactful, and he's, he's given them that. He really has. And w- one quick follow-up on, on Joe Pavelski. Um, outstanding hockey player. Uh, I think he's destined for the Hockey Hall of Fame one day whenever he decides to, to hang him up and, and waits the mandatory period. Um, but just a supreme athlete. Like Elliot and I were in Dallas about a month, month and a half ago, and uh, we had a chance. Elliot went and golfed with him. I had a chance to watch him, and like he's one of the best golfers amongst all the hockey players, maybe the best golfer of anybody in the NHL actively playing right now. I was talking to Wyatt Johnson, who's uh, who's staying with uh, with uh, with Joe's family, and he was talking about you know how he's you know not only the best you know hockey player and tipping pucks in front of the net and great golfer, but he said you know when it comes to any sport like basketball they'll play Joe Pavelski's the best player like he's just the example Randy of someone who's just a great athlete who's chosen to play hockey yeah and I think that's why the knocks on him when he was younger that he was uh, too small or too slow and his nickname by the way is pokey (laughs) at least it was in San Jose so it gives you an idea of even his teammates like to like to remember about his his foot speed but I, I just think to your point great athletes supreme elite athletes they overcome those things they find ways sure and joe pavelski has always found a way to do that and now you see even though he hasn't played in the series since game one you see his fingerprints uh, you know tyler sagan a couple of deflection goals and, and you can see the yeah. things <laughs> that joe pavelski brought yeah. to the dallas stars you know in in his hockey dna that even in his absence uh, is imprinted on the way they played without him Absolutely true. Let, 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 let's get to the series here. And, um, you know, w- what we're seeing is, I think, a continuation of what we saw in the playoffs last season with the, uh, the Dallas Stars and the Calgary Flames. And that is the emergence of the next superstar in Nets. You know, the other day, Randy, I was talking about, you know, Jake Ottinger's development and how he cemented himself in the NHL and kind of put out there that it's not too dissimilar to what we saw with Carey Price. And I know that's a huge comparison, but that's how much I feel about this guy. Like, that's legitimately how I feel about what we're seeing with Jake Ottinger. I think we're looking at the next Carey Price in the NHL with the Dallas Stars starting netminder. Where is Randy Hahn at with Jake Ottinger? Well, you know, only up to this point, uh, my observation of him would be when the Sharks played the Dallas Stars. And, you know, unfortunately, the way the Sharks have been going for the last few years, more often than not, we've been getting the backup goalie, if you know what I mean. So we haven't seen the live ammo from yeah. from Jake Ottinger as much as, as you'd like to in person. But uh, he, he was just absolutely tremendous in game one, uh, which the Stars lost in double overtime because on that night, Phil Gustafson was just a little bit better. But he made 45 yeah. saves in game one. I mean, he was absolutely terrific. And then he didn't need to be terrific in game two because Dallas uh, kind of blew the doors open with their with their offense and and with their power play. But uh, he's just uh, a tremendous athlete. Uh, speaking of good athletes, six five, two twenty. Mm-hmm. You know the the quintessential modern NHL size netminder. Uh, you know when you, when you draft a goalie in the first round. As uh, as Jim Neal did with Jake Ottinger, you know you, you know you kind of better be sure. Um, and they hit it on the nail with Jake Ottinger. Uh, he's just been phenomenal. And, of course, he had that 64-save game and lost to Calgary in Game 7 last year. But it's yep. been really fun watching him and Gustafson go against each other. And, and for Gustafson, I mean, it's his first time in the NHL playoffs at all. And he's, uh, he's shown himself to be a very, very good pickup and, and good on Bill Guerin because I don't think when Bill Guerin got uh, Philip Gustafson from Ottawa in the Cam Talbot trade that he ever thought he would turn into this, but um, lo and behold, he has. But the matchup's been very compelling. How do you um, how do you see this series? Um, I, I look at it, Randy, and I say, sure, there's a lot of skill. That's obvious on 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 both sides. But of all the series going on right now uh, in the opening round, this one seems to me to be the most old school of all of them. And when we say old school, generally we mean physical. 
and borderline violent. And it's not just, you know, the uh, the Dumba on Pavelski hit, but shift in and shift out. There is an element of nastiness in this series that I think is unrivaled uh, amongst all of the series in the in the opening round. Agree or disagree? I absolutely agree. Um, and, you know, coming into the series, you kind of felt that the Wild would play to that identity more so than the Dallas Stars, just because of the yeah. way Bill Guerin put the team together. Uh, and, 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 you know, he's been handcuffed because of the buyouts of Suter and Parisi, obviously. Yeah. That's like $12 million that he doesn't have to have players in his playoff lineup. So he's had to do the best he can in putting together a group. And, you know, I'm sure you've talked about the great trade deadline day he had, and, and that's showing in this oh, series. Yeah. But, but to your point about the physicality, I mean, Marcus Foligno was like a, he was like a human torpedo uh, in game four and in game three, <laughs> and then put pucks in the net and, and just was a tone yeah. setter uh, for the Minnesota wild in the series. And the Dallas stars had not backed down. I mean, they're a big, they're a big hockey team. They have a, they have a big roster. They out hit Minnesota in game four. Uh, it's been really fun to watch. And, and I think because of some of the profile of some of the other series, you know, the Leafs in Edmonton and Canada and the, the New York series and, yep. and Colorado in the U.S. And, and Boston. This one's kind of flown under the radar, but it's been a tremendous series. We know now it's going at least six and certainly wouldn't stun me if it goes yeah. the distance. No, not at all. And, you know, I, I look at the two coaches here and listen, you remember Dean Evason when he played like the Minnesota. First of all, both the coach and the general manager, I, I think, in, in style of play when they were on the ice, are more similar than they are a difference. Uh, Bill Guerin had skill and was tough. Dean Evason had skill and was tough. When I look at the Minnesota Wild, I've been trying to make this point a couple of different times in a couple of different places. This is, in a lot of ways, what a lot of teams are trying to build a skilled and tough team that can play any type of game that you want. Like, you know, Randy, whenever I hear John Tortorella talk about what he wants the Philadelphia Flyers to be and how he wants the Philadelphia Flyers to play, I close my eyes and I say to myself, he's describing the Minnesota Wild. Because that's kind of what Bill yeah. Guerin and, and Dean Evason have, have put together here. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, you may remember this. Dean Evason was an original San Jose Shark in the very first year in the Cal Palace. So uh, our memory of, of Dean as a player goes way back then. But, you know, you're right. The, the Minnesota Wild... Uh, I, I think you play to your audience, and the hockey fans in Minnesota want this kind of hockey team. They crave it. This, you know, we talk about Leafs Nation as being a tortured fan base because it's been since '67, and a generation of fans haven't haven't seen a cup. But there are banners in the building. Minnesota hockey fans, between the North Stars and now the Wild, have gone 47 years without a Stanley Cup. And throw in that the indignity of when when the North Stars moved to Dallas and five years later hoisted a cup there. Yeah. Uh, you know, sh- <laughs> shades of the Quebec Nordiques going to, to Colorado and that happening there. But uh, yeah. this fan base loves smash mouth hockey. It's, it's not necessarily a blue-collar town, yeah. but that's the way they like their hockey to be played. And Garen has put that kind of team together. And and that's exactly the way that Evanson played, as you pointed out, and and he coaches it that way. I you know I thought they got a couple of tough calls in Game Four uh, on the uh, yep. on the Felino penalties, both of which turned into uh, Sagan goals. But you know that's playoffs calls happen. But I don't see Evanson yep. altering the way they're going to play anyway at all tonight. And and Dallas, uh, to their credit. They're fine with that because they've shown it in a series that has been so close. 13 goals for each team. Uh, really, the only difference yeah. has been special teams uh, where Dallas has eight special teams goal, including a shorthanded goal, and, and Minnesota's managed to have uh, have only four. So to me, that's the only difference I can see in the series. It's been tremendous. Mm-hmm. It really has, and uh, you're always tremendous, and, and you always deliver. Randy, thanks as always for stopping by. I really always appreciate our conversations. Uh, this one, no different. Thanks as always, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. Great talking to you. Enjoy the hockey tonight.
the great Randy Hahn, Sharks play-by-play voice, also from the NHL on TNT. And tonight should be another one. Now this thing is best two out of three. These teams aren't going to stop. Like the one thing that we know, and this is a constant between the Minnesota Wild and the Dallas Stars, these teams get into each other fast and it is rough and yes there is skill there is Kaprizov and there is Haskinen and go right down the list there are a lot of skilled players on each and every side but uh, all those cliches you hear about playoffs and to finish your checks and send a message and what you do in the first shows up in the third both teams feel the exact same way this is as much as the series may be flying as randy mentioned under the radar like this isn't the rangers it isn't the bruins it isn't the leafs and it isn't the oilers and it isn't the avalanche and seattle is a a, a huge attention grabber as well i know it's kind of flown a little bit here under the radar but this is an outstanding series uh, if you listen or watch this show, I don't need to tell you. You're a hockey fan. You know these uh, these things already. Um, Minnesota Wild Dallas starts tonight, 8 o'clock Eastern on Sportsnet 360. Islanders and Hurricanes kick it off, though, at 7 o'clock. Um, a Hurricanes win, and it's done. We're seeing the handshakes. Handshake Alley in Raleigh. Oilers and Kings. This one's now a best two out of three as well. That one, 10 o'clock, or 9.30 Eastern, rather. Watch it on CBC and Sportsnet. Uh, thanks to everybody involved in the program today. You just heard from Randy Hahn. Uh, earlier, Thomas Hickey, Islanders, play, uh, Islanders studio analyst. Uh, Louis DeBrusque from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. And kicked it off as we do every day with Elliot Friedman. Uh, thanks to Mag Marchese, Lance Kennedy, and the returning Jen Rolnick. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 22 hours we will talk about the three games tonight enjoy them think about them we discuss tomorrow talk to you in 22 hours